Okay, good morning. How's everyone this morning? Happy Good Friday. Happy Good Friday. This should be a joyful and blessed day. Okay, and that's what we're going to talk about today. The title of the message today is Between Despair and Hope. And I'm blessed to be given an opportunity to talk about this today and share some thoughts with you on the importance of what Good Friday means and what the events surrounding it should mean for us. See, often you'll hear Good Friday messages that talk about the suffering and the tragedy of the cross, what Jesus went through, how he paid the price for our sins, and how this is a day to be remembered with sorrow. It is, after all, the day our Lord and our Savior died. However, it's also a day of joy. And ultimately, it's part of the much greater picture of God's love for us and his overall plan for creation. You see, Good Friday is only part of the picture. It's the biggest and it's the most important part, to be sure, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. However, it's one side of a coin, on the other side of which we can find the resurrection. And we'll hear about that from Kui Alvin on Sunday. But I'm going to touch on it a bit today because it's part of the whole picture. It's part of the same coin. Most of us consider that second part to be the reason for our hope. And there's definitely truth to that. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15 that if Christ has not been raised, our faith is futile and we are of all people most to be pitied. However, you can't have a resurrection without a death. Jesus himself explains this to his disciples in John 12, one of the many passages where he tells them what's coming. Let's read John 12, 23 to 24. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So, make no mistake, Good Friday was a tragedy. But the tragedy wasn't Jesus' suffering and death. The really tragic part was the reason he had to suffer and die in the first place. As Stuart Townend writes in the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us, you probably all know it, we sing it on Sundays, it was my sin that put him there. However, the story of that very first Good Friday, and that's what we're going to talk about today, the day that Jesus actually went to the cross, actually has another tragedy wrapped up inside of it. It's a tragedy that shows where we'd all be without God's grace and mercy. So I'm going to take a few minutes to set the stage here. We're talking about talking about Jesus' disciples and where they were at. During Jesus' three-year ministry, he called out 12 men to become not only his disciples, but also his closest friends. John 15, 15, he said, I have called you not just my servants, but my friends. Now, three of these men were even closer than the rest. I call those his very best friends. Jesus had an inner circle, Peter, John, and James. These three men they were the ones who went up the Mount of Transfiguration with him. They were the only disciples allowed in the house when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter. He kicked everybody else out except for the parents and those three disciples. And of course, those were the three that came into the inner part of the Garden of Gethsemane with him. So those three were his closest, his best buddies, his inner circle. Now, those three may have been called to be closer to Jesus, but it wasn't because of any special gifts or abilities that they had. Just like us, Jesus chose them because of who he is, not because of who they were. We all know Peter's story, how he denied Jesus three times after insisting he would die for his Savior. Let's read John 13, 36 to 38. Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter answered, will you lay down your life for me? Or Jesus answered, sorry, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. So, the thing is, we know where Peter was at, but James and John, they really weren't any better. They had their own problems. Remember that it was these two sons of Zebedee, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, that tried to jockey for position. They were trying to get ahead of the rest. Let's read Mark 10, 35 to 40. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. <laughs> pretty, pretty bold request, right? And what was Jesus' answer? Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And what do these two cocky guys have to say? We are able. And Jesus said, they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, okay, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. 
But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those who, for whom it has been prepared. So I would argue that Jesus' inner three disciples, James, John, and Peter, they were probably Jesus' chosen inner circle because they needed more help than the rest. <laughs> but at the same time, the rest weren't so great either because we read on into Mark 10, 41, what do the other 10 do? When they hear James and John trying to say, hey, we want to say your right and left hand, they got indignant, right? They got bent out of shape because they saw James and John trying for self-promotion. And so Jesus had to set them straight. Jesus called them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord over them and their great ones and exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And who would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The disciples at this point did not understand. Jesus still did teach them and work on them and uh, minister to them so they could understand what he was all about. They were still seeing this as, you know, Jesus was going to be their hero. Jesus was going to be the conquering Messiah, not the servant Messiah. But the thing is, Jesus has spent three years with these men, teaching them, guiding them, sharing the love of the Father with them. He took the time to explain his parables to them in more detail, beyond what he explained to the crowds. They watched him calm storms, miraculously feed thousands of people, heal the sick, cast out demons, and he raised at least three people from the dead. They even heard the audible voice of God from heaven on more than one occasion declaring exactly who Jesus was. And the last of these was only a day or two before Jesus' actual crucifixion that this occurred. John 12, 27 to 28. Jesus says, Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. In the midst of this, Jesus told his disciples as well on numerous occasions why he was here, what his purpose was, and what was going to happen. In fact, right after this section where the Father's voice comes down from heaven saying, I have glorified my name in you, we go on to verse, John 12, verse 30. And what does he say? Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Lifted up means lifted up on the cross. That's what he was talking about. It says right there, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He was going to be lifted up, raised up. That was the expression at the time for crucifixion. You were lifted up on the tree. So he had made it clear to them what was going to happen. But again, we see, we know they didn't quite get it. The Last Supper came probably a day or two after these events. And this is where the Gospel of John, this is why I really like the Gospel of John, its account of it, because it provides a wonderful account of Jesus' last moments with his disciples. Not just at the Last Supper, but in the things that happened afterwards. During the Last Supper, we also know Judas took off to do his thing. But the other 11 were still there with him. And what does he do? He goes out with them afterwards on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he teaches to them, he speaks to them, he ministers to them. And that's in John chapters 14 to 16. Don't worry, we're not going to read the whole thing, but you really should because this is what can best be called the Christian survival kit. These four chapters of John, 14 to 16, are probably some of the best chapters, certainly in the Gospels, to read when you're going through a rough time. Because this is why Jesus said these things to his disciples. He knows what's coming. Even as disciples understand, Jesus knows that what's going to come is going to be the worst time of their lives. He knows he's about to go to the cross. He knows he's about to leave them alone. He's preparing them. John 14 to 16 is all about preparing his disciples for what is about to come. He knows what's coming. They're still clueless. Okay, They don't see it, but he does and he's preparing them. This is where he says things like, let not your hearts be troubled, twice in fact, while giving them hope, telling them of his peace, and promising them the Holy Spirit. However, again, the disciples just don't get it. Our text this morning that Quilvin read and that we read together comes from the very end 
of these chapters, the very end of Jesus' conversation. It's right before the high priestly prayer in John 17, and his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane in John 18. These are the last words that Jesus speaks to his disciples before his crucifixion. The last actual teaching words, at least in the Gospel of John. Because the only thing we hear Jesus say after that to his disciples is in the garden when he tells Peter to put away his sword. <laughs> right? That's actually the only other recorded words of Jesus in John to his disciples before his crucifixion. But again, even when the disciples think they get it, they don't. Let's read that last part of John 16, 29 to 33. His disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly, not using figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe you came from God. They're saying, now we get it. And what's Jesus' response? Do you? Do you now believe? Do you really? And he goes on to say, Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Again, this is a rhetorical question. When Jesus says, do you now believe, he knows they don't. Like Peter's earlier claim, the disciples are still standing on their own strength. Jesus prophesies right after that they're going to be scattered. He says, the day is now upon us that you're going to be scattered. And that's exactly what happens. Again, we know the story of Peter. He denies Jesus three times, and according to the Gospels, he went out and wept bitterly after that. That's in Matthew 26, 75 and Luke 22, 62. But again, let's not be hard on Peter. He may have denied Jesus three times, but where were the rest of them? Peter followed Jesus from a distance. He didn't want to be associated with him, but at least he was following him still. The rest had already been scattered. We know there was one other disciple with Peter from John 18, Okay, 15 to 16. John 18, 15 to 16. It says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door, so the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, watched at the door, and brought Peter in. Now, we don't know who that other disciple was. Most scholars believe it was John, because John was the other disciple. He always referred to himself in the th third person in his gospel. The disciple Jesus loved, the other disciple. Plus, Peter and John tended to be joined at the hip. But we don't know for sure that it was John. But if John was the other disciple, he's likely the only one who remained near Jesus through all the events of Good Friday. You see, if you've watched Easter movies, you're probably used to seeing several of the disciples gathered on the cross. All these movies love to show all the disciples, the Marys, they're Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, they're weeping, they're crying, they're comforting each other. It's a classic scene, but there's only one problem with it. It's not supported by Scripture. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that most of the disciples were at the cross. In fact, it only says there was one disciple at the cross, John. The others were most likely not there. Jesus prophesied the disciples would scatter, and scatter they did. The only disciples there was the one that's mentioned in John as the disciple Jesus loved, John 19, 25 to 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And for that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So 12 disciples who followed Jesus closely. One betrayed him, that left 11. Of the 11, only one stuck around at the cross. The other 10, scattered. They weren't there. Now, to be clear, Scripture does expressly say they weren't, but the omission of any mention of them anywhere in the four Gospels is a pretty big clue. The Gospel of Luke says a large number of people followed him on his way to the cross, but after his death, Luke says that only his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood watching from a distance. His acquaintances. Not his friends. His acquaintances. From a distance. That's in Luke 23, 49. So after Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, most of his disciples fled in fear. It said they fled in Matthew 26, 56 and Mark 14, 50, among others. Peter, he held back. He followed at a distance. But as we can see from his denial of Jesus, he didn't want anybody to know he was there. He was curious. He, was, he wanted to see what was going on. He wasn't sure, but he was definitely afraid of what was going to happen. And that was it. 
To put it simply, most of the disciples were in fear that they were going to be next. From their perspective, a purely human viewpoint, everything was falling apart. It was all over. Jesus was about to be crucified. His mission was a failure. All their hope was gone. Even John, that sensitive poet and dreamer who stood in contrast to the headstrong warrior Peter, was probably only at the cross because he loved Jesus and wanted to be there at the end. I don't think John had any more hope than the rest of them did, but he was sensitive enough that he wanted to, to be there for Jesus and for his mother and for the women. So, this brings us to Saturday. It's the forgotten day of Easter. It's the day we gloss over on our way to Sunday. However, it's also the day where most of us actually live. It's where most of us spend most of our time, figuratively speaking. It's the day between despair and joy. If Good Friday is one side of that coin I spoke about, and Resurrection Sunday is the other side, then Saturday is that thin edge in between on the side of the coin. It's a small area, but again, it's where we spend most of our lives, most of our time. You see, Good Friday is the day when everything falls apart. It's a day when we cry and weep and wail, but we still believe on some level that God is going to pull us through whatever dark time we're in. Then comes Saturday. Some morning you wake up and nothing's changed. The day the disciples woke up and Jesus was still dead. Jesus was still in the tomb. As John Ortberg says, there's been only one day in the last 2,000 years when literally not one person in the world believed Jesus was alive. Saturday. Between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Picture it for a moment. Jesus' followers have been on the run or hiding in fear for at least 36 hours. Probably more. Since Thursday night when Jesus was arrested at Gethsemane, they've seen all their dreams fall apart. And now everything is just quiet. Crowds are gone. The city that was screaming from blood for blood the day before is silent. And Jesus is still in the tomb. In fact, the rest of the world around them doesn't care. They didn't follow Jesus. They don't see the tragedy. Back to life as normal. It's just a Sabbath day. You know, yeah, there was this thing that happened yesterday on Calvary, on, at Golgotha. They crucified some criminals. Now, back, back to business. Enjoy the Sabbath. The adrenaline is gone. Even for the disciples, it's the Sabbath. It's a day of rest. Now, the disciples are no doubt in extreme mourning. They love Jesus. He was their friend and their teacher, and he's gone. And everything that they believed in, however they believed, died with him. Everything he was going to do, everything he was going to accomplish, has died with him as far as they're concerned. It's over. At this point, they are the same as all the rest of the unbelievers. They've lost all their faith and all their hope in what's going to happen. We can see that. And again, to be clear, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what the disciples are doing on Saturday, but it's not hard to read between the lines. On Thursday night, they scattered. On Friday, most of them were nowhere to be found. And on Sunday, they're found hiding in a locked room. It's not hard to imagine that's where they spent Saturday, too. In hiding, in mourning, fear, depression, despair. Plus, it was a Sabbath. It was a day of rest. They weren't supposed to be doing anything. So they sat around. They probably told stories about their good times with Jesus. They probably had all the things you do at a funeral when you're mourning somebody's death. Because they did not, despite everything Jesus told them, they did not expect him to be coming back. They did not expect a resurrection. So how many of us can relate to this? I know I can, many times. Friday is the day you lose your job. Friday is the day you find out you have cancer. Friday is the day your marriage falls apart. Friday is the day when everything goes to rot. Saturday is the day when you wake up and you're still breathing, but nothing else has changed and you don't know what to do about it. You're just numb. You're just there. Like the disciples, you're in between despair and hope. Those of us who know Christ, however, do not need to remain stuck in this never-never land. You see, we talked earlier about how the disciples didn't get what Jesus was teaching them. They didn't understand, despite all the miracles they saw him do, despite all the things he prophesied, they didn't get it. Well, they had an excuse. They actually had an excuse. They didn't get what Jesus was telling them because they couldn't get what Jesus was telling them. Not at that point. 
And Jesus knew this, which is why he spent so much time counseling them in those chapters of John, 14 to 16, in that Christian survival kit. In the midst of this, however, he promises, you don't get it now, but you will. You will get it eventually. You will understand. John 14, 25 to 26. These things I've spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And in John 16, 12 to 15, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. You see what the disciples were waiting for, even though they didn't know it? At that point, the disciples did not have the Holy Spirit. They were incapable of understanding what Jesus was trying to tell them. As Paul would later write to the Corinthian church, the Holy Spirit is required to understand the things of God, 1 Corinthians 2.14. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In fact, I believe that many of the things that Jesus was telling his disciples wasn't for now, they were for later. Because Jesus knew they weren't going to understand them now, but he knew they would look back on them and get them later. Because in John 14, 26, he says that the Holy Spirit will not only teach the disciples all things, but bring what he has said to their remembrance. I can imagine the disciples looking back after they received the Holy Spirit and having one of these light bulb moments. Everything Jesus said suddenly made sense. They didn't get it then, but as soon as the Holy Spirit fell upon them, it was like, how could we have been so blind? Wow, now, now we get it. But it wasn't after the resurrection as the disciples still hiding in a locked room, that Jesus gave them that Holy Spirit. John 20, 21 to 22. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. Now, it's a whole other sermon as to what all that meant, but suffice it to say, by the time Acts 1 and Acts 2 came around, they experienced the power of the Holy Spirit, and we know the impact that had. This group of men who had locked themselves in a room, fearing the Jewish authorities would be coming for them next, next, were suddenly fiercely confronting those same authorities. These disciples were in a locked room because they were afraid they were going to get arrested. A couple weeks later, they're out there in the face of those same authorities. <laughs> they're actually getting in their face. The Holy Spirit. Only explanation for that. So again, what's our excuse? We don't have to wait for the Holy Spirit. We have him living inside us. Ephesians 1.13 In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. That is a fact of scripture. If you've heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, believed in him, you have the Holy Spirit. So we may be living in a Saturday in our lives, but that doesn't mean we should be living between despair and hope. See, the world tells us not to hope. That's the world's attitude. It teaches us to be afraid to hope. Don't dare hope because it's not going to happen. You're just going to set yourself up for disappointment. Don't hope. Hope is bad. We may be able to, you know, uh, actually, I'm here. I'm reminded of a line from the Shawshank Redemption, the movie The Shawshank Redemption, for those of you who've seen it. Red, the character played Morgan Freeman, describes hope as a dangerous thing. A thing that can drive a man insane. That's the world's view of hope. Don't get your hopes up. You're just going to be disappointed. We may be able to learn from our sufferings, but don't expect to come out of them. Settle into your Saturday experience, because that's all you're going to get. That's all you can ever hope for. One bleak day after another, with nothing ever getting much better. In fact, the most optimistic worldview is that suffering will it'll help you build character. Now, that's a biblically supported viewpoint, to be fair. God did make it in such a way that we grow through suffering. Romans 5.34 to the first part, 5.324, okay? The first part. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character. But here's the thing. That's where the world leaves off. 
Suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character. Those who know this passage know the Holy Spirit picks up where the world leaves off. The last part of verse 4, and character produces hope. That is the biblical view of hope. It's a very important step further. Yes, it builds character. But why does it build character? Not so we can be, be, be bigger, tougher people, but so we can produce hope. That's the end game. The end game is hope, not character. Now, Pastor Sonny has explained numerous times what the biblical hope is. It's not the world's hope. It's obviously not the hope that Red is talking about the Shawshank Redemption. It's not that where you say, I hope it's not going to rain tomorrow. That's not biblical hope. Because it may or may not rain tomorrow. Right? Biblical hope is more like how the Shawshank Redemption's protagonist, Andy Dufresne, describes it. Hope is a good thing. Maybe the best of things. And no good thing ever dies. Or, more theologically, as John Piper puts it, Biblical hope not only desires something good for the future, it expects it to happen. And it not only expects it to happen, it is confident that it will happen. There's a moral certainty that the good we expect and desire will be done. And the Bible is filled with promises that give us hope for all of our Saturdays. Just a few of the ones that you probably already know. Romans 8.18 For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that has to be revealed to us. 2 Corinthians 4.17 For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And 1 Peter 5.10 And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. We can have hope because the Bible promises us that our suffering is not the last word. Our Saturday will come to an end. Now to be clear, our Saturdays may last for longer than what the disciples endured. Lots of biblical examples of that. King David. Okay, David? He spent about 20 years living in caves on the run from his lunatic father-in-law who was trying to kill him. Okay, before he became king. We all know Abraham's story. About 25 years between the promise of Isaac and and the fulfillment of it. And of course, we also know the story of Joseph, who got beaten up by his brothers, tossed in a hole, sold into slavery, falsely accused of rape, and then cooled his heels in prison for a few more years before finally being appointed second in command of Egypt. Those are all their Saturdays. And those are some long Saturdays, but the difference between these people and the disciples, as we can see in Hebrews 11, is that they hoped and had faith in their Saturdays. They knew it wasn't over. They knew God was going to come through. Now, however long our Saturdays last, we can have hope as we wait on God. But it's important to realize this is not just this sort of grinning and bearing it, kind of waiting for our eternal reward. A lot of people think that. Well, we're going to suffer in this life, but when we all get to heaven, it'll be wonderful. But this life is going to suck. That's not true. Yes, some things in this life are. Jesus said we're going to have tribulation and he's overcome the world. But what does Psalm 27, 13 to 14 say? I believe thou shalt look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. The land of the living, this side of eternity. And there's other verses that support that too. This kind of waiting, however, it's also important to note, is active waiting. It's not passive waiting. Even when we're in a dark time, we have to continue to seek God and trust him to lead us through. We don't just sit around and go, well, God will work something out. I'm just going to do my own thing. As Psalm 23, 4 says, we're supposed to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We all know Psalm 23. We're supposed to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We're not supposed to pitch a tent in it and camp out. Okay? Or, as C.S. Lewis put it, it is true that some people may find they have to wait in the hall for a considerable time, while others feel certain almost at once which door they must knock at. I do not know why there's this difference, but I am sure that God keeps no one waiting unless he sees it is good for him to wait. When you do enter your room, you will find that the long wait has done you some kind of good which you would not have had otherwise. But you must regard it as waiting, not as camping. You must keep on praying for light. And of course, even in the hall, you must begin trying to obey the rules which are common to the whole house. Waiting is not camping. Waiting on the Lord is not just sitting back fatalistically expecting God to do something. And with that kind of hope, true biblical hope, what else should come with it? Joy. 
because we know God is going to come through. In fact, that's what differentiates biblical hope from the world's maybe kind of hope. We know the sun is going to come up tomorrow. We know it's not going to rain tomorrow, metaphorically speaking. 1 Peter 1, 6-9. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtain the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I think it's the King James Version says, joy unspeakable and full of glory. If we truly trust God, knowing that we're going to see his goodness, if we know with beyond a shadow of a doubt that we're going to see God's goodness, how can we not be filled with unspeakable joy? How can we not be? How can we just sit in there on Saturday and go, oh, life is horrible. We know God is going to come through. How can that not be joyful for us? And Jesus himself promised that not only would his disciples so return to joy, but that once he saw them again, after his resurrection, nobody would be able to take that joy away from them. John 16, 20 to 22 from our text this morning. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Now, being a man, I tread on dangerous ground when I talk about this, but how many mothers here who have gone through childbirth can relate to this? Okay, and when you're pregnant, moms, when you were pregnant with your kids, do you sit there fearing the pain of the childbirth or looking forward to the joy of the child? Maybe a bit of both, but, but really I think you could say afterwards that the joy of the child outweighed the pain of the experience. And even if you were fearing the pain of the experience, you were still looking forward to the joy of the child, right? Again, I can't relate, I'm a guy, but for moms, okay, I, I, would, I would hope that's the case. I hope it wouldn't be like, oh, I'm going to you know, pop with this baby. It's going to be so painful. I think you were looking forward to your child, right? You know, more, more, to, the, more to the point, okay, how many of you who are moms would want to go through the pains of childbirth if you didn't know what was coming out? <laughs> if you weren't sure what was going to come out at the end of it, would you really want to go through with that? Yeah, I didn't think so, right? So the joy is in the hope of what we know is coming. And we can endure that pain because we know what is coming. And that's why, I mean, Jesus used that example. I may not know what women go through in childbirth, but he was the son of God. He did. He may have been a man, but he's also the son of God. So, Jesus didn't promise the disciples wouldn't endure suffering. In fact, he explicitly said they would endure suffering. But he promised them joy. So what is the answer to this kind of permanent joy? It's easy. Keep your eyes on Jesus. What did he say? When you see me, you will have joy. And nobody will be able to take that away from you. Now, that by itself should be enough to make us joyful. But there's an even greater aspect to Good Friday that should give us even more joy in our hope. And that's the fact that God always wins. And in God's economy, what seem to be tragedies are actually triumphs. We've talked about joy in our suffering, but remember that even the suffering can have a purpose. At the beginning of this message, I talked about Good Friday's actually a day of joy. That's only true if you understand what biblical hope is and understand the nature of the cross, what the cross is all about. First thing we need to understand, and I mean really make this a foundational part of our faith, not just go, yeah, yeah, this happened, but really, really understand it, is that the cross was God's plan from the very beginning. It wasn't something that happened to Jesus. It was the plan. That is to say, before Genesis 1-1, before God created the heavens and the earth, he already knew that he was going to have to send his son to pay for the sins of mankind. He knew Adam and Eve were going to drop the ball before he created them. We all think, oh, well, it's amazing that God didn't, you know, didn't decide to you know, start over after Adam and Eve sinned. He knew they were going to sin before he created them, so he didn't need to start over. He already knew what was going to happen. 
He knew that the world was going to be handed over to Satan, and he knew exactly what his solution to that problem was going to be. Now, I don't know about you, but if I knew that I was about to create a world where I'd have to sacrifice my own son, I'd think twice. I'd be like, I don't know if I want to do that. However, God, who knew every detail about how everything would turn out, did it anyway. So he obviously decided it was worth it. Now, why? Secret, the secret things of God. But again, the point is that the cross was not something that happened to Jesus. It was the entire reason he came. When John 3.16 says, For God so the world that he gave his only son, it's not talking about simply sending Jesus to teach us how to live, to be an example for us, or, or to be that nice man that we teach our kids about on Sunday school lessons, right? God sent Jesus to die for our sins. It's easy to miss that because John 3 is at one side of the chapter and John 19 is at the other end. Okay, there's three years between them in time. But the fact is, Jesus came to die. Jesus came to be the sacrifice for our sins. That was the reason he came. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. And it says in Revelation 16, 8, the New King James Version says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, they're talking about the beast here, whose names have not been written in the book of life of the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So from the foundation of the world, Jesus was the lamb slain. So this also, by the way, means that we shouldn't fall into the trap of thinking that Jesus was you know, standing with us and against God and dying for our sins. There's a common misconception or error that's kind of slipped into modern Christian, you know, Christian thinking that God is this nasty, wrathful being, like the Old Testament God, and that Jesus you know, had to step in to save us from God's wrath. Not what Scripture says. Not even close. God is the one who saved us from God's wrath. He sent his son, and it pleased the Father to bruise him. The Apostle Paul describes Jesus' sacrifice as a fragrant offering or a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Isaiah 53.10 Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Ephesians 5.2 And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. I use the King James Version there, New King James, to make a point, but the ESV still says a fragrant offering to God. Okay, so when Jesus was being sacrificed on the cross, it was a sweet, smiling offering. It pleased God. Now, lest we think God is some kind of cosmic child abuser, okay, he's not. Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, fully had a choice in the matter. He went to the cross willingly. Although he practiced full obedience to his Father, that obedience had to be by choice. John 10, 18 is where he says it most plainly. No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, I have authority to take it up again. This charge I've received from my Father. So Jesus made it abundantly clear that his sacrifice was his choice, but he was so perfectly obedient to the Father that he had no other choice because he had, was obedient. His choice was to have no other choice, if you understand what I'm saying. But as we saw in Gethsemane, when he prayed to the Father, take this cup from me, he, it wasn't what he wanted. It wasn't you know, what he fully desired. He had his reservations about it, and there's lots of evidence where he could have changed his mind. Satan would not have spent 40 days tempting him the wilderness if Jesus did not have the ability to succumb to that temptation. Satan would have known there's no point. So Jesus wasn't a robot. He had a choice at every stage of his walk on earth here as the Son of Man, and he went to the cross willingly. Now, as we all know, the disciples did not get this. They saw the cross as nothing but the ultimate tragedy the end of all their hopes and dreams. Well, Christians know better than to see the cross as the end because we know Resurrection Sunday is coming. We still make the mistake of seeing it in a purely negative light. The reality, however, is the cross actually represents the very heart of God and the very mind of God. Think about that for a minute. The cross represents the very heart and mind of God. Do you want to see how much God hates sin? Look at the cross. Do you want to see how much God loves you? Look at the cross. It was the greatest love story ever told and probably will ever, will ever be told this side of eternity. As people were jeering and mocking him, I mean, what kind of cruelty does it take to mock a guy who's being crucified? Would you go down to, would you go down to uh, you know, state prison in the U.S. and mock somebody sitting in an electric chair? I mean, that's the equivalent of what the people were doing by the cross. They were mocking a guy who was dying, who was being executed. And what did Jesus say? Father God, forgive them, for they know not what they do. 
Now, if that's not the greatest act of love, I love a song. I, there's a song I listened to years ago by a Christian singer that goes, he said this was more love than any human heard before that time or since. It was a statement that makes the strongest skeptic wince. Father God, forgive them for they know not what they do. So yes, the cross was a tragedy. It was the greatest tragedy in the history of the universe. In fact, it was also the greatest injustice the world has ever seen. Even Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. Pilate played every angle he could to make sure that Jesus' blood wouldn't be on his hands. He tried to release them. He sent them to Herod. Let Herod condemn them. I don't want to be involved in this. But at the end of the day, Pilate was fearful of his own job. He was fearful for what would happen if he didn't you know, follow along with what the Jewish leaders wanted. He was fearful of the emperor. And so he did what was expedient rather than what was right. And you know what's funny? He only bought himself, that was a side, side note, he only bought himself a couple of years. He, in fear for his job, he sent Christ to the cross. And about two years later, he was deposed by Emperor Tiberius Caesar, and he died in exile in Gaul in 41 AD. If you look up the history of what happened Julius, uh, to Pontius Pilate. So whoever tries to save his life will lose it. But again, we can't lose sight of the fact that the cross is the greatest tragedy, but we can't stop there. The cross is also the greatest triumph in the history of any universe, and it's something that only God can pull off. Taking something that could be so thoroughly evil on the surface and using it for good. Making it part of his good plan. And it's important to understand too, Jesus didn't die merely for the forgiveness of sins, or even to save us from sin. He did, but that wasn't all of it. That was a means to an end. God sent his son to die so that we could be restored into the relationship with him that we were always supposed to have. The relationship he created Adam and Eve to have with him in the beginning. Sin was in the way of that. So it had to be dealt with. And it was dealt with on the cross. But the purpose of the cross was to get that out of the way so that God could have a relationship with us. It wasn't just to go, yeah, your sins are forgiven now. You know, go in peace. It was to get us back into relationship with God. I absolutely love how Oswald Chambers puts it. This is one of my favorite quotes. There's nothing in time or eternity more absolutely certain and irrefutable than what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. He made it possible for the entire human race to be brought back into a right-standing relationship with God. He made redemption the foundation of human life. That is, he made a way for every person to have fellowship with God. The cross is the central event in time and eternity and the answer to all the problems of both. The cross was nothing less than a triumph. In fact, as Chambers goes on to say, it was the supreme triumph that shook the very foundations of hell. Now, if the tragic death of God's son can be such a triumph, how much more can he turn our tragedies into triumphs when we hand them over to him? Most of us know what Paul says in Romans 8.28. Let's read it. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Now, always remember, this says all things. Not some things. Not just the things that God approves of, or things that really aren't that bad. All things. Now, there's a small catch here. For those who love God, are those who are called according to his purpose. God won't just randomly work everything out in your life. You can't just sit back, oh, God works all things together for good. I'm just, everything's going to be fine. Everything's going to be wonderful. No. You have to surrender those things to him and seek him. Now, how do we know we love God? By what we consistently do. Not by what we perfectly do, but what we consistently strive for. As John Bloom says in Desiring God, we know what love is by what love does. All lovers of Jesus refuse to walk in persistent, conscious disobedience to him. Our faith-empowered obedience in public and private places is the God-designed evidence of our love for Jesus. So, if that's you, if you're striving to obey, if you're seeking him, then Romans 8.28 applies to you. You love God and you're called according to his purpose. And again, with that in mind, the Bible says all things work together for good. The things that happen to us that are out of our control and the things that result from our own stupidity and sin. No matter what we've done, nothing is beyond the reach of God's goodness and grace. And he has promised to work it all together for good. If we merely offer up to him and trust him to do so. It's when we try to work these things on our own that we get into trouble. Without the Holy Spirit, we're just as hopeless and confused as the disciples were on that bleak Saturday morning. 
We can't figure these things out on our own. We have to rely on the Holy Spirit. We have to turn them over to God. And here's the great thing with the promise of God to work all things together for good for those of us who love him. Only a few short verses later, God promises us through the Apostle Paul, this comes, it's the word of God, it comes from God, okay, that he will do anything for our good and that nothing can separate us from his love. Romans 8, 31 to 39. What then, shall we, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And guess what? He is for us because he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we know how much he loves us by looking at the cross. And we know that nothing can separate us from that love. And he works all things together for good. Right, so I understand now why you should have joy in your hope. Why you should not live between despair and hope. But you should be living in hope. Now, the key to embrace this, of course, is knowing that his definition of good and our definition of good don't always line up. We are often those kids that want to eat candy and play in the mud all day. Yet, all the while, God is that patient father who knows that's not where our true joy is found. That's not what's best for us. So we have to surrender to his definition of good. However, as Romans 8.32 says, God already gave his own son for us. After that, how can we ever believe that he will hold anything back? As Psalm 84.11 says, For the Lord God is a son and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Who are those who walk uprightly? Those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Those who have made upright in the righteousness of Christ. So, don't camp out in your suffering. Seek God, worship him, praise him, and realize that he is where your true joy is found. This is what Paul means when he says we're to be patient in tribulation, rejoice in hope. Romans 12, 12. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And this makes it pretty clear that we're being told to rejoice, we're not being told to rejoice for our sufferings, we're being told to rejoice in our sufferings. Don't sit down with this fatalistic attitude that some, you know, Christians get going, oh, well, thank you, God, for my sickness. I know you're trying to teach me something through this. That's not scriptural. Be patient in your tribulations, but rejoice in your hope. We should not have to grudgingly praise God for sickness, poverty, or pain. Yes, we may be able to go through those. Those are our Saturdays. Those are the dark times in our lives. But there's hope. There's hope that God is going to be with us in them. There's hope that he's going to work all things together for good. And there's hope that knowing him will be the supreme treasure of the entire experience. Rejoice in the hope that comes from knowing Christ and knowing that he will work it out for our good and his glory. Now, this kind of hope requires a true view of God. Especially when you're stuck in a season of tribulation and waiting. There's an old saying that says, if we're not firmly rooted in the goodness of God, we're going to lower our theology to match our pain. Okay, a lot of us do that. We're sitting in a Saturday, we're sitting in tribulation, and we're, well, I guess the Bible doesn't really say that God's going to come through for us, right? That, that, that can't be possible. We're lowering our theology. We're lowering our view of God to match our pain. We need a true view of God. We need to remember who he is. So, one of my favorite quotes on hope one that pulled me through some very dark times, some of the darkest periods of my life, was this quote. It's from an author named Sarah Haggerty in a book called Every Bitter Thing is Sweet. And it goes, You will meet a man in this pain who will pick up the slivers of your story and write his name on each one. You're knowing him alone through this will make every tear worth it. Hold on to hope. Hold on to hope. Even those closest to you will challenge it as the world around you collapses but hope is your greatest weapon because it is his invitation into the unseen. Hope requires a true view of God. And that true view of God is not natural. It's from him. One day the unseen will be more real to you than what your eyes can perceive. Let Good Friday be a reminder that this kind of hope 
is more real than even the air that we breathe, the ground that we walk on. This kind of hope is more real than the pews you are sitting on right now. We think real is this. The unseen, God's economy, God's kingdom is far more real than anything we see this side of eternity. And therefore his promises are more real than anything we can depend on on this side of eternity. If God can use what may seem like the very worst tragedy and justice in the history of the universe to offer salvation to the entire human race, then what can he do with our tragedies? He can turn all of our tragedies into triumphs too. Remember that death and sin do not get the final say. Jesus has already defeated them at the cross and given us the final word from him. Let me close with one last quote from Oswald Chambers. The greatest note of triumph that ever sounded in the ears of a startled universe was that sounded on the cross of Christ. It is finished. That is the last word in the redemption of man. Let's pray. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you. Great.